Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, a weekly podcast that answers your call for good political satire by telling you you have the wrong number and please don't call here again. This is episode 101, I'm Tiernan Duyeb, and this week as Prime Minister and the missing link between a stalagmite and a penguin, Theresa May, says the British public can promise her to deliver, I've no doubt it'll be between 9 and 5 on a day no one's in and then sit in a depot until it's returned to sender. Yes, it's yet another week where asking, does the UK government have a Brexit plan yet, gives you a more consistently assured answer than asking where bears shit. But hey, at least bears are actually getting something done. This week, May has divided her top team of ministers into two separate groups to look at which of two completely unworkable options the UK should use for its customs relations with the EU. Should they go with the one the EU said definitely won't happen, or the one that the EU said really can't happen? At this stage, with less than a year to go, it would be more economical to send her cabinet down a river in a selection of mouldy barrels while a crow pulls random words out of a bag. Team 1, aka the Suicide Squad, but mostly because of how boring they are, is Balloon Attached to a Bin Bag, Michael Gove, Disgraced MP Liam the Disgraced Fox, and David, probably has a swear tin that's never been used, Lidlington, who'll be considering a customs partnership. But actually, how they'll probably be spending most of their time is trying to stop Liam wandering off because he's seen a squirrel, while Lidlington keeps getting snacks in on expenses, and Gove keeps changing his mind every two seconds, depending on what he thinks will sound best in a headline. Team 2, aka Gloom Patrol, has person made entirely of cappuccino froth, David Davis, a woman who's just excited to be outside, Karen Bradley, and Greg Clark, who's so hard to describe on account of him resonating at such a dull frequency, he's almost impossible to notice. They will be discussing the maximum facilitation option, a solution based on technology, which probably means Davis will just be showing everyone how the aubergine emoji can be used in a rude way, Bradley will sit gazing at sensory perception videos on YouTube, and Greg Clark will mostly not even attend, but no one will ever, ever notice. Foreign Secretary and what it would look like if they made a CBB show about irritable bowel syndrome, Boris Johnson, is not part of the groups, on account of him saying publicly that he thinks the Prime Minister's preferred customs partnership plan is crazy. 
And that's pretty harsh criticism from a man who thought there should be an airport on an island in the Thames, authorised spending £32 million on a failed garden bridge project, thinks it's fine to make racist slurs towards people who are hosting you while abroad, changed his political views for popularity and consequently threw the country into mayhem and didn't get a chance at the party leadership at the end, and signed off on a cable car over the only bit of London where there's nothing to see on the ground. I mean, Boris saying a plan is crazy is like a dog telling you your cooking stinks while it's eating its own shit. In normal circumstances, Boris would have been sacked as Foreign Secretary for speaking out like that against the Prime Minister. But as these are abnormal circumstances, her letting Boris go would be more like letting him have a lifeboat when she'll certainly need his bloated body as a raft when everything continues to sink. So instead, May penned in the Sunday Times to ensure the content-paying public that she will be taking back control, but she needs our help to do it. I say she should start a Kickstarter and see how many people give a shit. The House of Lords, a.k.a. where politicians go to die, have voted to make 14 amendments to the withdrawal legislation, including backing the idea of a Norway-style solution to Brexit. Labour have said that won't work, probably because why would we want to do anything one of the most constantly rated happiest countries in the world does? That'll clearly go against our British values of having something to be miserable about all of the fucking time. Haunted Whistler painting Jacob Rees-Mogg has raised the issue of reforming the Lords as a retaliation to their amendments, which is a bit of an odd call after Moggy voted against reforming the Lords in 2012. I look forward to him extraditing himself for his traitorous behaviour very soon. Meanwhile, ardent Brexiteer Daniel Hannan has admitted that Brexit isn't working out the way he thought, which is a surprise to many as we didn't realise he thought about anything before. Hannan is less a Brexit spokesperson and more a perpetually directionless human satnav who's forever recalculating to find the best route to nowhere. Which seems like a fairly apt description, as this week we've also heard that Brexit is forcing the Galileo satnav out of the UK, with our country losing access to its encrypted system. I mean, it isn't as if Brexit hasn't already proved it has absolutely no roadmap so far and is driving completely blind. The Leave.eu campaign have been fined £70,000 by the Electoral Commission for breaches of electoral law, but founder and talking can of dog food Aaron Banks is refusing to pay, saying it's a politically motivated attack on Brexit. Of course, I mean, why not campaign for your country to be more sovereign and then denounce its laws? That makes sense. I had no idea Brexit was about letting people do criminal acts and get away with it, though I suppose if we get all the Brits back that emigrated to Spain, then some of it by default will be. Banks swears that he is always, always the victim, though sadly it's never of very violent crimes. And a UN report states that Brexit has definitely made racism more acceptable in the UK. I swear the UN only do reports into things we already knew two years ago. I'm pretty certain their next one will be on exactly how many retweets you need to get free chicken nuggets. In America, US President and love child of two saggy elbows, Donald Trump, is withdrawing the country from the Iran nuclear agreement, claiming that Iran are building a giant nuclear weapon, despite him having absolutely no evidence for this. Do you know why they aren't building a giant nuclear weapon? Because of the fucking nuclear agreement. I bet Trump would tear up a peace treaty because he thought it would prevent war. I bet he'd poke an angry sleeping lion with a pointed stick because he heard it might wake up despite hearing it snoring. I bet he'd drive straight through red traffic lights at a busy junction to save lives because he heard they might go faulty. Meanwhile, North Korea has agreed to put its nuclear programme on hold in exchange for the US helping with its economy. Great! Now why not do the same sort of deal with Iran and call it the Iran Nuclear Agreement? 
I'm sure it's only because Obama secured the Iran deal that Trump wants to back out of it, like he has with all other former presidents' policies. It's just such a shame that Obama didn't insist on putting in a policy that all future presidents don't have to smack their head against a large marble slab six times a day or something similar. The US has opened an embassy in Jerusalem as part of its controversial recognition of the city as Israel's capital, and violence has already started with 52 Palestinians killed by the IDF on the Gaza border, including six miners and a man in a wheelchair. 70 years ago, Israel was born as a state, and it seems that Trump's presence there is just a shallow, antagonistic one. He's the sort of person who'd turn up to a diamond wedding anniversary party with an amateur sex tape of him and one of the couple. While Israeli forces again engaged in disproportionate violence against Palestinians, their country's act, Netta Barzilia, won the Eurovision Song Contest on Saturday night. Must have been quite odd for them to have public backing for once in occupying a much sought-after place. The Sunday Times Rich List was revealed on Sunday and said the accumulated wealth of everyone on the list is £724 billion. I reckon we should sell them all off and fix the economy. Scotland Yard have said a small amount of crystal meth was found in the Home Office. I guess that might explain why Amber Rudd was never aware of anything ever. At the end of this week, the government will no doubt be shoving out all sorts of controversial policies while the country is distracted by a TV star joining the royal family. Personally, I think it's an outdated institution that costs people far too much money and doesn't provide any worth for modern-day society apart from irrelevant pomposity and show. But hey, I guess some people like marriage. And lastly, very sad to hear of the death of former Labour MP Dame Tessa Jowell, who was a pivotal part of the London Olympics actually being good, which surprised everyone. She also created the Sure Start Children's Centre programmes, something that's now all but been shut down by the government in the last eight years. But don't worry, in her memory, they have pledged to honour Tessa's legacy by doubling funding into brain cancer research. And that is a good thing. But, but one, without the other, does feel a lot like the government is saying, hey, they hope you have a crap beginning in life, and then they'll make sure they prolong your miserable existence as long as possible. Yeah, it's episode 101. Does that mean this contains the worst podcast content in the world? No, of course not, because I used all that up in the Jingle Mega Mix bonus episode that I released last week. I can't believe how angry that made some of you. Well, no, actually, that's not true. I can't believe how much some of you enjoyed it. I can definitely believe the angry stuff. I couldn't even listen to it. It was awful. It was definitely awful. What was amazing is I pretty much saw someone subscribe to the podcast and unsubscribe to it within about 10 minutes of listening to that using uh, the ACAST statistics. Uh, that is quite incredible. I did, I did warn you. I said on it. Don't listen to this unless you really have to. Anyway, look, don't fear. There won't be another one of those for at least 100 more episodes. Um, sorry, what I meant to do was start this with a hello. Hello, how are you all? And welcome, welcome to all the new listeners, um, however you found this corner of the audio internet, and all you classic, hardcore, old-school vet listeners that are just gluttons for ear punishment, so just keep returning. Um, we are back to a normal episode this week with Interview and Everything, and, 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 the big news is... Fanfare, please! There is now a podcast website. Yes! The crowd rejoiced. That is right. If you head over to partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or even parpolbro.co.uk, because that's right, I've got the bucks to pay for both names. It was it was only £11. Anyway, then you will see the real fancy new website designed by the brilliant James Hingley. Um, it's got all the episodes on it so far, um, so you can go back and listen to any you may have missed. Plus, you can search for specific topics, find all the social media and email links, and all of that. Who are what's it? It is brilliant. 
What it hasn't got yet, why not ruin the mood there by pointing out its inadequacies? And what it's not got yet is episode and interview transcripts, but they uh, will be getting very slowly, very, very slowly added, uh, along with linear notes for older episodes too. So um, hopefully at some point in the future, it will be a lovely resource for anyone that... um, Anyone that needs lots of ways to describe Theresa May, I guess. Uh, so that is the big news this week. Um, in other things, thank you tons and tons to Joe and Janine, who are now uh, Patreon donators. That is hugely appreciated. Um, just $81 to go before I hit the target I set years and years ago. Um, and if you'd like to sign up to give regular donations, then please head to patreon.com forward slash parpolbro or click the link on the parpolbro.co.uk site. Um, and thank you to Anonymous for the uh, Kofi donation. I assume that's not the global activist group and it's just one of you wishing to remain unknown but either way it is appreciated um and if you wish to do a one-off donation then please do that at ko-fi.com forward slash parbolbro or again via the podcast website links they're all there i don't need to say this every week you can just go to one site and click away how exciting um and look this week um if you can donate obviously if you can't don't worry if you can um this week in particular it's a real mega help as last week a stupid sports cap water bottle leaked in my bag and my laptop uh basically died um it's now it's in it's in surgery uh undergoing some severe and very expensive repairs um and i'm stealing my wife's laptop uh for a day much to her chagrin so um sorry about that but thank you thank you beloved one um and uh under the plastic ban those sports cap bottles should really be the first to go don't you think i mean not only are they polluting and killing whales but there is every chance that it's ruined a lot of whales personal laptops as well just by opening uh unnecessarily so yeah all donations this week will go towards fixing my podcast creating machine aka my laptop and buying cakes for my wife to placate her for how much i'm stealing hers um so anything anything consent uh, basically could could save a relationship and a laptop all at once um it does baffle me how technology can connect to the internet store like years of music and yet one drop of water and it's fucked on the plus side, if robots do ever take over, like, they'll lose in the UK within a week of shitty weather. And that is good to know. Um, thank you also to Gas Dr. Joe and Pafir Greej uh, for the iTunes reviews. I think, I don't know if that's, I'm saying that right. I mean, I always worry that when people put funny names for, uh, like, reviews and stuff, that it's not a made-up name and maybe you're a character from Star Wars and you'll forever be sad that I've pronounced your name wrongly. Um, hopefully not Pafir Greej. Hopefully I've said that perfectly rightly um but if you want to type something nice about this show it does really help get more people to listen so please do that on itunes stitcher or anywhere else that podcast reviews do lurk um right on this week's show uh, there is an interview with holger hestermeyer who is a shell reader in international dispute resolution uh, what does that mean good question we will never ever know ha joke it's all explained in the interview and that is going to be the sort of brexit nonsense for this week um and then we've got a four-hour discussion about whether the term gammon is racist or not ha joke it's not racist otherwise butchers would be done for race hate murders but before all of those things here is these things firstestly yeah, the Miller bands are back again. Do you remember the Miller bands? They're that uh, really funny double act with the older one who was dead serious all the time and had Lego hair, and then the one who was more goofy looking and couldn't eat a sandwich. Oh, and then it was really funny. Do you remember that episode where the older one wanted to be leader, but the younger one did? Uh, he got to be leader instead, and then he got his floppy friend who danced around like to help. Oh, it was the best. But the, this past week, both have made a reappearance into the limelight. Uh, David Miller band uh, by standing with Nick Clegg and Nicky Morgan behind a lot of rice, but. Not 
not for long enough to stop them being the wettest panel I've ever seen. Uh, and they did that to oppose a hard Brexit because, yeah, those three will definitely sway Leave voters. And David Miliband suggested we needed to seek a safe harbour, proving he's never been to a harbour because in a harbour there's water, bits of boats and basically sea death everywhere. Uh, and Ed Miliband has been back in the limelight by getting all tuss enough in the Commons when his bid to enforce the second part of the Levis inquiry, a.k.a. Too Press Too Furious, fell through by nine votes. If you remember, the first part of the Leveson inquiry in 2012 looked into issues within the culture of the press and the ethics of journalism and its relationship with politicians. At the time, uh, then Prime Minister and spoon made of Play-Doh, David Cameron, took into account the inquiry's calls for a new independent body to replace the Press Complaints Commission, and after taking into account those inquiries' calls, he did absolutely nothing about it, which wasn't at all to do with him being mates with several of the people involved in phone-hacking scandals and then hiring them for his own team or anything like that. Definitely not. Nuh-uh. No way. Who on earth would suggest such a thing? Anyway, uh, round two, another 48 Leversons, was to look at members of the public who had become victims to harassment and poor practice by the press, such as Millie Dowler's family, and then examine why it happened and who on earth covered it up. The government actually announced that they were going to drop this bill in March, but Ed Miliband and Ken Clark tabled an amendment to the new Data Protection Bill to include it, but it was narrowly rejected on accounts that such a move might undermine a free press. Really? A free press? Or a press free to antagonise the public while inviting Theresa May to a party for their editor? Yes, a free press is important, but claiming this would undermine it is like saying opposing hate crime is against freedom of speech. No, what you've done there is confuse basic human rights who are trying to justify being an arsehole who is mostly against other human rights and regularly prints that on their front pages. On the plus side, I don't think Leveson Part 2 would have been a very good sequel. I mean, the Empire Strikes Back section happened very much at the end of Part 1. Theresa May's policies, much like her career as Prime Minister, seem to refuse to die. Her call to create new grammar schools was rejected after the laughable snap election, proving that whatever she learned in her education, they probably should have provided more risk management. But it doesn't matter because now Education Secretary and most unpopular item at the Garden Centre, Damien Hines, has announced £50 million for grammar school expansion. Yeah, the best way to tackle childhood obesity is by making schools bigger to fit them in. Sorry, I mean, that is what the world needs, for existing grammar schools to be able to take in more children so nearby comprehensive schools will lose pupils and funding. Win! This time round, though, rather than try to pretend that grammar schools are good for social mobility, which evidence suggests they aren't, as only 3% of intake is of children from poorer homes compared to national school average of 14%, but rather than even try and pretend that that isn't the case, Heinz backing for this new announcement is just, actually, this amount of money will only help 3,500 children in grammar schools schools. Oh, so it's not even that great for grammar schools either. Brilliant. What a disappointing plan for absolutely everyone. In addition to funding, Heinz also announced that the plan to remove the cap on faith schools that says they can only allocate 50% of faith-based admissions has been rejected. And while the idea of 100% faith-based schools sounds pretty terrifying to me, I have to say it's a shame. I mean, young people have no other future prospects with housing, education and employment all fucked. At least if they were forced into religion, they'd have some sort of hope. Hey, you've had a shitty life, but when you die, you go into heaven. Boom. How much 
much of the Brexit terminology are you au fait with? Do you know your WTOs from your ECJs or your EEAs or your EUCUs? And wait, hang on, isn't all this part of that Jackson 5 song? Theresa May vowed this week to deliver the Brexit that people voted for, but on the slip of paper I got, it just had two boxes and options to remain a member of the European Union or leave the European Union. I mean, if it had a ton of footnotes with explanations of every trade agreement possibility, abbreviation, legal terms and all that, I think it may have put quite a lot of people off, and bloody hell, the ballot boxes would have had to be huge. While many people get angry at the suggestion they may not have fully known what they were voting for, I personally know that the legal areas of Brexit are not my bag. And even if they were, I'd probably have spilled water on them due to a stupid sports cap bowl. Oh God, it's still... Just thinking about it makes me so angry. The possibility of the UK staying in the single market is back on the table thanks to the House of Lords, and the Cabinet are still squabbling about customs unions. But to you and me, the average Joe, or um, average Tiernan in my case, what do those differences mean to the way that the UK will work post-2020, if it works at all? Oh wait, maybe Theresa May meant our Brexit would be in two boxes, with people able to get cross in either one. Well, I suppose she's already managing that, isn't she? This week, I spoke to Holger Hestermeyer. Holger is a shell reader in international dispute resolution, which doesn't mean he scours the beach searching for small mollusks to whisper legal solutions to him. No, it means he lectures and advises many on the key issues that will and have arisen in Brexit negotiations. Holger has been a special advisor to the House of Lords EU External Affairs Subcommittee, worked in the Court of Justice of the European Union, taught at the Dickensian Poon School of Law at King's College London, and is definitely one of those experts that Michael Gove probably doesn't like very much. I came across Holger's work after we both contributed to an end-of-year piece for politics.co.uk, and I found that his writing and teaching was so brilliantly clear that even an idiot like me could understand it. Holger is currently in northern Italy at the University of Ferrara as the Letizia Gianformaggio Visiting Chair. I've probably said that all wrong. Um, And I spoke to him while he was in his ridiculously lovely spacious office. Uh, And as a result, there is a little bit of echo at his end, but I don't think it affects the sound much at all. Um, So enjoy as Holger explains exactly what he does, what WTO rules mean, and so much more that my brain had previously just assumed was complicated and therefore ignored. Enjoy. Here is Holger. Okay, so I wanted to ask you, because I think uh, one of the things I find fascinating is that your job title absolutely terrified me when I first read it. And then after watching you do lectures and reading some of your um, articles and things, I understand what you do better now. You're very good at explaining it clearly. So, for the sake of the listeners, um, could you sort of explain what international dispute resolution is and why um, why people should care about it or why you know how, it, how does it affect us? Because it sounds completely... Um, like nothing I knew about beforehand. So the first thing is I teach in a law school, so of course international dispute resolution is a specific legal term, and there's a legal definition for the types of disputes we care about, which is when two parties disagree concerning facts, the law, or policy, and bring claims or counterclaims and denials. And uh, that is the specific legal term. But in the background of a concrete legal dispute, there's also always a conflict, conflicting interests. uh, And that conflict can be vastly broader than the specific legal dispute. And what I teach in the law school is how to resolve those legal disputes. Hopefully, they also resolve the factual conflict underlying it. Sometimes they do not. And I think that is important for lawyers to know. 
sometimes what we do can be productive for the parties to resolve the situation, sometimes it is not. So that is the dispute resolution part. What makes it international can be various things. It can be disputes between parties from different countries, and quite frankly, that is not what I do. I do public international and EU law, so I do disputes where the subject matter relates to either international law, those would mostly be cases in between two states, or is related to EU law, so cases that might end up in the Court of Justice of the European Union. Did that help at all? Yes, that absolutely helps. And, I mean, it also uh, sort of directly helps with the next question, then, because I think, I think a lot of people can understand, uh, definitely from a law perspective, but when it comes to international uh, law, it, things feel like they're a lot harder. Um, but as you've explained, you deal with EU law, so how, how do you deal with this in terms of Brexit? You've, you've worked on Brexit, haven't you, with, uh, as an advisor to the Lords? How does this come into play, uh, international dispute resolution? I think the first thing is um, I wrote my PhD thesis on WTO law a long time ago. And I've been teaching WTO law for longer than I care to admit, um, getting older, I fear. <laughs> and uh, so that was one of my specialties. And I've worked at the Court of Justice at what's called a referendaire. Those are the assistants to judges or advocate generals. And I've assisted the Spanish advocate general in his cabinet and uh, ended up just out of necessity knowing about EU law. And it turns out that Brexit involves all of these areas quite intensely. And so my specialties that were, if you want more coincidental, helped me with Brexit and enable me to help the UK just a tiny little bit with Brexit and hopefully to grasp the problems better. And so I got involved in Brexit, writing about it. I wrote articles about it. And I helped others to set up an initiative called the UK Trade Forum, where we try to explain trade issues and legal trade issues that come up, first of all, in a neutral way, but secondly, hopefully, in a way that people who don't specialize in trade law would understand. And then I also had the opportunity to help a subcommittee of the EU Committee of the House of Lords with questions on trade and Brexit. And because... One of the, uh, I mean, it's been again in the news this week about whether or not we'll have some sort of customs partnership or not, whether it'll be WTO laws or not, where are we going to go? Um, this, you know, do you think people realise just how kind of complicated this area is and how much everything might change once Brexit kicks in? No, I think the, the problems are incredibly complex. And I do have the feeling that a lot of people... Uh, were not and still are not uh, very much aware of the problems. In fact, in my home country, in Germany, right now, there's a question that's been put to Parliament to make sure that parliamentarians and that the government is more aware of issues that will come up with Brexit. Uh, it involves so many different areas of law, so many different areas of regulations. If you follow the House of Lords activities over the last couple of months, and the areas they've been working on, it's actually quite astonishing. And one of the things that I think is quite important here is we are talking at times about very technical topics. So the customs union. Customs union is a specific term in world trade law in the WTO. It's mentioned in Article 24 of the GUT. There's a technical definition to it. 
And it's been something that people in the public are not used to discussing. And I think the technical knowledge, and this is not specific to the UK, the technical knowledge is largely absent. Uh, that's not astonishing that it endangers the level at which the public debate is actually run, because quite a lot of times you have the feeling that people don't properly understand the terms of the debate. Um, and we have to think of how we can structure public debate to ensure that the people who then have responsibility for the decisions actually are able to take them in an informed way. So in, in which case, and one of the, one of the lectures I particularly enjoyed of yours online was you, you used Marmite to discuss the differences between um, uh, our current uh, EU laws and, and the WTO laws. Um, I mean, you don't necessarily need to use Marmite again, although it was a personal favourite. But what, uh, in your very clear way of explaining it, how big a difference would WTO laws make to our everyday lives at the moment, if that's what we, we went to? I think one of the differences that is not sufficiently talked about, and this was the one that I mentioned in that presentation, is in the enforcement of the law. So let's say that the UK and the EU end up agreeing on better terms of trade, so on a free trade agreement between the two partners. Traditionally, and in most cases, free trade agreements are not directly applicable in the courts of the countries. So if we take, for example, the WTO order, you cannot go to a British court and ask for WTO law to be enforced. What does that mean? So let's say that Hungary decides to break its WTO obligations, so to act WTO illegally. And you're a company that exports into Hungary. How would you challenge the Hungarian measure? You could go to Hungarian court and say what you're doing is in breach of WTO law, but the Hungarian court says, well, that's fine. We don't apply that legal system in our courts. The only way you can challenge that measure is you lobby the home government, the UK, and then the UK has to sue Hungary in the WTO, but it can use discretion. A lot of cases are never brought for political reasons. You don't want to offend your partners or quite frankly, often because you say, how much trade is at stake? Oh, we're speaking about one million. That's not worth it for a country to bring a case against another country. How does it work under EU law? EU law is directly applicable in every member state. So if Hungary breaches EU law and it makes it more difficult for a UK producer to export to Hungary, you would go to a Hungarian court and you would say, the measure here is in breach of EU law. The Hungarian court is obligated to use and apply EU law. You then don't have an appeal to the European Court of Justice. There's no appeal to that court. But if the Hungarian court feels there's a question under EU law it needs answered, it can then ask that question to the European Court of Justice. And if it's the last instance of the case, then the Hungarian court, if it would face a question of EU law, is obligated to ask the question under the, to the European Court of Justice. So I think those are the two differences. Under WTO law, under a free trade agreement, companies cannot challenge a national measure directly in court. They have to lobby their home government to sue the other, uh, the other country. Under EU law, EU law is directly applicable. You can go to the courts of the countries as an individual and invoke EU law.
so really, I mean, any anything sort of outside of uh, the current kind of customs union that we have now would just make life a lot harder for businesses. It takes so much power away from them that it seems, uh, you know, I, I can't imagine that there'd be many cases that were won if, if there'd been international issues with them uh, once we move away from Brexit. Uh, that's definitely true. There will be a lot less cases and a lot of violations of agreements traditionally and habitually go unchallenged. And I think it's important uh, to also add here, uh, countries disregard agreements quite often, not out of spite or not because they're unreliable partners, but because there are a lot of complex questions to ask. And legislation doesn't necessarily always comply, and those questions are not always asked. So in the end, you end up with national legislation or national regulations or an application of the legislation that violates an international obligation, not out of spite, but, but, but because there was an oversight, because domestic uh, interests lobbied quite strongly, uh, and because there was no one who brought up the fact that it was in violation of international obligations. So in which case do you think, I mean, as this is currently a discussion this week and probably will be next week or the week after and the week after, as I can't see it uh, coming to any sort of conclusion soon, but, it, you know, how damaging would it be for the UK then to not have any sort of customs partnership or union or whatever they choose to call it with the European Union at all? Because it seems to me that if we move away from that sort of relationship, uh, it's going to be quite problematic. So I think here you have to distinguish several things. What we spoke about beforehand was dispute resolution and direct effect of the law. If we speak about a customs union, we speak about something quite specific. Uh, we speak about an order in which two customs territories get together and say, from now on, we will have an outer customs border, and in between us, there will not be a customs border. There will not be any tariffs. Uh, what does a customs union enable industry to do? If you now export something from the UK to France, you don't have to prove anything and you don't have to pay any tariffs. If in the future there will not be a customs union but a free trade agreement between the EU and the UK, the UK might still get access to the French market without tariffs, but that access will only be granted to UK goods. You have to show that your good is a UK good. And there's a specific set of law relating to that called rules of origin that are quite complex, that are very product specific. But at the border, you have to show, look, what I'm bringing into the country is a UK product. Uh, a lot of the small companies that currently deal EU-wide have no experience whatsoever with rules of origin. They don't have the software in place. They would need to prove origin. They, don't, they have never done that. So they would probably be scared of continuing to do that type of business. For larger businesses, it becomes a cost question. Do you want to invest in the software if you don't have it? Uh, or would you rather pay the tariff? Is your business model sustainable, paying tariffs, if you cannot prove origin? So you see, those are the questions that come into play. Now, the concrete discussion is, a, sadly, a bit of absurd theater, because the two proposals that are currently being discussed 
have both been regarded as unacceptable by the EU. So let's go first with uh, Theresa May's proposal of the customs partnership. Here the UK would voluntarily apply EU customs law to everything that comes into the UK, and then if it stays in the UK, would reimburse something. At least that is what I understood the customs partnership to be. Now, um, the EU doesn't trust its own member states to apply EU customs law without oversight by the Court of Justice, without the possibility of infringement proceedings. And quite frankly, there's also the possibility that you don't like an EU measure and think an EU measure is illegal, and you can challenge that directly in your customs proceedings and ending up before the European courts. How would that work? The UK would voluntarily apply EU customs law. I don't see that in any way as acceptable if you say our member states apply the law in a harmonized system under surveillance of a joint court and of the European Commission, but then we allow a non-member to do it without any oversight. I don't see that happening. That's the customs problem. The second proposal seems to be based on um, technical solutions to the border of making border processes simpler. Now, that's always possible to some extent, but it will not make the border disappear in, uh, in Ireland, Northern Ireland. And accordingly, that's not really a way to reach the result that the UK wants to reach, namely uh, no border in Ireland. So I, I don't see how any of those two proposals will be successful. So I find it a little bit bizarre as an observer uh, how the debate about it is so harsh when none of the two seem to be able to fulfill the goals that the UK has imposed on itself with regard to the Northern Irish Irish border. It is, it is amazing to think that we've, uh, you know, so many of the uh, the cabinet and things have made comments about how the EU are trying to derail it or trying to force a no deal. And now they're saying, we'd really like you to trust us to <laughs> manage all your customs rules by ourselves. Like, it's quite a weird change in stance, uh, you know, uh, for, for people to have. But I think this, this goes back to one of the problems. We're speaking about a very, very specific technical area that few people have thought about before. And uh, it's suddenly become highly politicized. It's an area that has not been subject to that type of politicization before. And I'm not sure uh, that uh, in, in that atmosphere it will be easy to find solutions. Do you think that's been a major problem with uh, most of these, uh, most of the kind of Brexit negotiations so far? Um, the, the, the kind of politics just seems to have consistently got in the way of any kind of progress or reasonable um, discussion at all. I, I think, yeah, I think that's been the case for a long time. And, and the discussion on the both sides, the two partners do not speak the same language because the EU always departs in everything it does. It departs from uh, how EU law works and its constitutional constraints. And I think it's a cultural difference in that the EU is a constitutional construct in a, in a federal type, not a federalist system, but a federal type system in which there are competences, in which every organ has a limited role to play. 
in fact, in which the council, in which the member states are represented, has its role and limits, for example, what the negotiators can do. And I'm not sure that this culture is sufficiently understood on the UK side, where we act under a constitutional system uh, that gives the executive very, very large powers in foreign affairs, uh, traditionally already, but uh, in this particular case, uh, that seems to be even more relevant because the scope of the negotiation is so incredibly broad. So I think there's two cultures clashing, and we have to understand better. In fact, we should be able to understand that the EU has been set up to have limited powers, and it cannot do anything outside of it. That was one of the reasons we wanted to leave, that we said the EU cannot act as flexibly as we would want it to. Right. And, and now we're surprised that they cannot act flexibly. <laughs> Oh, it's so depressing. Um, and is that one of the, because one of the um, sort of the way that I knew of, uh, found out about your work is we both did a, a, a sort of forecast for politics.co.uk about what 2018 might hold. Uh, and in your um, uh, couple of paragraphs that you wrote that were excellent, you described Brexit as a very British revolution. And was that why? Uh, I think that was, the first thing is, why is it a revolution? And I think traditionally the UK system always regarded from the outside as one of the most competent political systems. It was a system of also of a very, very competent civil service and very pragmatic politicians. And now you have the decision to leave the European Union, which was done in a way that uh, on a referendum, so democratic and quite frankly needs to be accepted, but done in a way that is not traditionally very well organized in the UK system. So the UK system is not traditionally one of direct democracy. That's Switzerland, not the UK. And it seems that this has upset the whole balance. Suddenly you have politicians making proposals that are at times violate WTO law, are completely unrealistic, and this didn't used to happen before. So I think, much like in a revolution, you suddenly have a revolutionary movement that discards everything that they regard as ancien regime. And so the civil service that brings in the technical competence is no longer trusted to the same extent because it's regarded as belonging to an ancien regime. And that means that you have what used to be a pragmatic system following a competent civil service suddenly unhooked from that advisory function. And I think that's all part of the revolutionary description. You also have to choose sides in the revolution. Everything is about Remainers and Brexiteers, quite frankly, something I feel not very comfortable with. Um, I rather am interested in what solutions can we find. Uh, but whenever you find a solution that sounds uh, remotely like you're basing yourself on EU law, you're suddenly put into the role of Remainer, or even worse, Ramona. And uh, that's the revolution part. The very British part is no blood is being shed. It is still all based on debate that in the House of Commons still takes a shape that we're all familiar with. So it's a very British revolution in that it mixes tradition 
with the revolutionary movement in a very peculiar way. So it's sort of an oddly, an oddly kind of polite revolution in, in some ways, or oddly civil revolution, uh, if you put it like that. Exactly. It'll be interesting to see how, how this uh, continues and whether there's a way to connect the civil service again to the political level, because I think to, to get uh, to solutions that actually work on the ground, you need to reconnect the two levels. Um, they're, they're, otherwise, we will not get to realistic solutions. Sure, but I guess that will also uh, need, or it, it will mean that politics has to be removed from some of this discussion for that to happen, because it seems that every time the civil service pop up uh, to kind of say this is not plausible, like you say, they're then called one name or another. Um, so we need to somehow fix that element first, I guess. Yeah, I, so I have the mild hope that uh, once the UK has technically left the EU, so let's assume everything goes well and we actually will have a transition period. I'm not entirely sure we will, but let's just assume it will happen. Um, I hope that the moment the UK is technically out of the EU and there's no legal way to get back without rejoining the EU, that the debate then can take a more pragmatic form because what seems to be an enormous fear that Brexit could be stopped at that point uh, is no longer possible. But it's just a hope that I have. I'm not entirely sure that this will happen. Well, the thing is, I, I regard myself really as Brexit neutral. It's, um, I do think like the UK has a right to leave the EU. And I, 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 of course, I'm pro-EU. That's un unavoidable if you've actually worked there. But it's it's a voluntary organization, and quite frankly, I, I wouldn't want to join the U.S. necessarily. I love the U.S. as a country, but that doesn't mean I want to be part of it. And I think it's the it's the right of the U.K. not to be part of the EU. I just despise some of the debate around it, but I really don't want... I, I find if I offend people on the Brexit side, uh, they, they stop listening. And um, that's always dangerous. It's difficult to do these days. But uh, I try my very best. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
plushcare.com slash weight loss. I don't know if you knew, uh, but racism and religious intolerance in the UK have become more acceptable since Brexit. I know, right? Who'd have thought that years of unverified rhetoric about the dangers of immigration, rife Islamophobia in the media, a government with a hostile immigration policy that deports non-white British citizens, an opposition with anti-Semitism issues, free copies of the Daily Mail in our airports, a rise in hate crimes, schoolchildren getting caught out for blacking up, and the royals having to say Prince Philip is ill just so he doesn't say something hugely racist or pervy or both to his grandson's bride. OK, I don't know that bit for sure, but it's probably right, isn't it? But who'd have assumed that all of that meant the UK was a bit racist. No, me either. But a UN reporter says so, so hey, I guess that must mean it's true. Itendai Achumi is the UN Special Rapporteur, uh, which I think is spelled rapporteur, like R-A-P-P-O-R-T-E-U-R. So I think that means she does all her reports in, like, sick rhymes to heavy beats, but who knows? Anyway, she spent 11 days in the UK investigating the impact of Brexit on racial equality. And what did she learn on her trip? That it doesn't matter where you're from, you're welcome in Britain, unless you're from somewhere that isn't Britain. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but basically, she noted a failure by political leaders on all sides to condemn racism that's perpetrated in the media and in political campaigns, uh, that hate crime rose by a third each year since the referendum, that there is inequality in the justice system, and that the right-to-rent programme is hugely discriminatory. Basically, you name an area of society, we've done it racistly. And that's just a taster too, as the full UN report is due to come out in June of next year. The government responded by saying, hooray, she liked the racial disparity report bit, because, you know, they'll scour for any nugget of gold. And then they said, if there's no rational explanation for racial disparities, then we, as a society, must take action to change them. Which feels a lot like what they did after a UN special report said the government's treatment of people with disabilities was appalling, and Number 10 responded by kind of going, great, that's what we were trying for. But... I think it's reasonable to say that much of what the UN report has stated is fairly obvious, especially to people of colour in the UK. And while that is great that the UN is highlighting it all and putting the pressure on our government, there is more and more hidden institutional racism that is being revealed every single week. The resignation of Amber Rudd as Home Secretary and the appointment of Sajid Javid to her place seem to be the government's way of saying, hey, it's cool, we've done our bit now, all done, it's all fixed. But more and more concerning elements of the hostile environment policy have been coming to light ever since. Figures have shown that more than half of the UK's police forces are handing victims of crime straight over to immigration enforcement for detainment. How grim is that? You report a crime, you do the time. Bloody immigrants coming over here trying to make it a safer place by reporting crimes? Weird. Southall Black Sisters, a campaign group that's been working on this, say there has been a rise in cases where rather than deal with reports of violence or rape, they've just arrested women or referred them to the Home Office. So that's letting the criminal go free and punishing the person that reported them. Did they read the How to Uphold the Law guidebook backwards? Are they going around waiting to see if a burglar will apprehend them? Do they go back to their stations and sit in the cells? The Home Office has said that victims of crime must be treated as victims first and foremost. Cool, but A, that's not what's been happening because of aggressive deportation targets, and B, how are you treating them second and next most? And that's just one of many systems in the UK that's been changed by the government's disproportionately high immigration targets. Another one that's come to light this week is that thanks to a High Court review in December, the Home Office has now had to pay hundreds of thousands of pounds to European rough sleepers who were illegally detained and deported. In 2016, Theresa May made it so that rough sleeping was an abuse of the EU treaty because, you know, she's just a bundle of compassion wrapped around a ball of care. 
and 698 homeless EU nationals were targeted and deported, even if they were working or had right of residence. Evidence suggests most immigration officers were working to quotas, and now, as a result, many of those arrested unlawfully have now been awarded damages of around £10,000 each. In a weird way, I think this may have been the most the government have ever done to tackle homelessness, albeit accidentally. The government seems to be waiting to be caught out on all of this before they do anything about it, with the only time they appear to be aggressively anti-racist is when there's evidence the opposition have issues with it and it can be used for political point scoring. There's still no official budging on immigration targets, still no sign of removing foreign students from those targets, still no sign of actually doing anything for the Windrush victims, despite saying, hey, here's Sajid and his family could have been victims of this, but they weren't. Phew. Either more needs to be uncovered so that May and her hostile environment policies have no one else to hide behind, or maybe it'll just turn out that, after all, our secret immigration policy was just to put anyone off wanting to come here because we'll probably treat them like invaders, and hey, why worry about the full UN report when, if we step things up a notch, their special rapporteur might avoid coming back anyway. And now, back to Holger. I wanted to ask as well, um, and uh, I hope this is... I, I, it was one of the questions I sent you that I think um, you said might be kind of stepping away from this theme, but I thought we'll, we'll give it a try. Um, but do you think that we're seeing... We've got kind of Brexit in the UK and we've got America first in America and kind of nationalism now rising in, in parts of Europe. Do you think there's a sort of global resistance to uh, kind of, you know, large-scale organisations and, and will that affect international dispute resolution in the future? So I think at first I would distinguish at least partly those movements. If you look, for example, at the rhetoric employed by the Brexit movement, at times it seems to almost embrace global standards. Uh, it embraces the World Trade Organization, whereas on the American side, America first actually currently is in the process of dismantling the World Trade Organization as a functioning system. Uh, so. They're at least at different levels. I think they do all share a sense of restraint that comes from the international system and assign blame for, for problems that exist to international institutions and to international constraints. And in that, they coincide. And I think in that, they, they all attack the currently existing international system. I do think to some extent they misassign blame because a lot of times it is not the international system that has brought the constraints to the national system and that have caused the problem. But it is quite often that there is an internationalized problem and there's no national way to solve it. If you think, for example, about global warming, Yes, there are now there's an international order that tries to constrain national behavior, but it does so to try to resolve a problem, global warming, that no nation can solve by itself. The same is true for the European Union as a system that was set up to solve problems that nation states had that they could not solve alone. And in fact, you cannot have a functioning global trading order without constraints on your national sovereignty. I, uh, is that a risk for dispute resolution? Quite clearly it is. In fact, you can identify the risk these days. Uh, WTO dispute resolution is, and has been for some time, the best functioning bit of the World Trade Organization. It's 
been tremendously successful, binding dispute resolution for all 164 members of the WTO, a lot of cases, a lot more cases than the International Court of Justice, and no member can escape dispute resolution in the WTO. However, the US is currently looking with a lot of disfavor on the system, thinking that the system is being too creative and has introduced new obligations into the WTO system. We can rationally dispute that. I would say the WTO system is amongst the most uncreative, the most literal systems of international dispute resolution that I know. Uh, but the truth is the US and the current administration, but actually this goes beyond the current administration, does not like the system and they have now decided to not let any nomination to what is the WTO's court, it's called appellate body, to not let any new members be nominated to that court. And uh, we are now down to four members from seven. Each case has to be ruled on by three members, so it's just a matter of time when the appellate body will literally no longer work. And that is the destruction of an institution of international dispute resolution that was amongst the most successful uh, in the international system. So is this a threat to international dispute resolution? I think it is. And I belong, but I'm a lawyer, of course, and I teach international dispute resolution, so maybe that's also an institutional bias. I, of course, believe that this rules-based system and this structured system of resolving disputes uh, is conducive to world peace and to better cooperation between countries that otherwise will just drift into intractable conflicts. So I would mourn the day that the system falls apart. I, I was I was going to ask just for you. Are you guessing the the result of that could lead? You know, because in in my head, or sort of my basic knowledge of political history, but that's often how wars have started because of trade disputes. Is that you know the sort of fear that if if something like the work the WTO fell apart like that, that we'd be seeing something uh, you know potential wars and disputes like that. So the traditional history of the background to the Second World War, for from the economic side is that during the economic crisis of the late 20s, the US raised tariffs by quite a lot and other states responded with, with similar measures. And this did not help to resolve the economic crisis, to say the least. And the economic crisis certainly led to radicalizations. If you think of the rise of power to Hitler, um, it is doubtful that he would have risen to power without the economic and social crisis that Germany was in at the time. This might be a little bit of an over-interpretation on the side of economists and of lawyers. It is now in question to what extent these uh, tariffs, the smooth Hadley tariffs, actually did uh, play an enormous role in the aggravation of the world economic crisis. But one thing is certainly true, economic crisis does not lead to stability in the system. And instability brings with it enormous risks. I don't want to dramatize things. It's not necessarily risks of war, uh, but it's certainly risks that we would do better without. 
Sure, um, and one uh, sort of, I, I, and we can we can decide maybe if this is too too much or too complicated to go into. But um, my curiosity has been, you know, there's been a real rallying against um, the kind of global trade treaties like TTIP, the Transatlantic Trade Initiative Partnership, or the Canadian one, the uh, CETA, or um, there's now been a, a West African one with Europe that I think has, has fallen apart. Um, are those uh, cases where? you know, blame has been placed in the wrong area. Do you think those are good ideas, um, having big international treaties like that, or do you think it's actually quite dangerous in terms of the rights of businesses and of the workers and things? Actually, I think I have a, a rather nuanced idea in that way, and I think uh, the EU and Brexit serve as a good object lesson here. Somehow, strangely, currently in the UK, there's this feeling that free trade agreements are the best thing ever. But we forget that just a short while ago, we've been very, very critical of free trade agreements that the EU negotiated. Take TTIP, for example. Uh, ACTA, an agreement on intellectual property rights, actually fell apart. TTIP also was opposed so strongly that in the end it's been put on ice and we don't know how long it will be on ice and whether it will ever leave the ice. But we should not forget that all of these agreements contain obligations. That is how free trade agreements work. And we've moved beyond the days where those obligations were just lowering tariffs. They are now obligations pertaining to intellectual property. If you want to limit, for example, the duration of patents, that would violate WTO law. Almost all of these agreements have some regulatory side to them, and they're very difficult to change unlike the European Union that at least has a parliamentary system where you have a legislative function and where changes to EU law can be made, trade agreements very rarely are open to change. And if change is possible, it's incredibly hard to do. The WTO system, ever since its inception in 1995, has very rarely been changed. And there's been, in terms of amendments to existing treaties, uh, only one, only to the TRIPS agreement, and that was very, very hard to reach. We might not like the regulation that goes into those agreements. We might like it. We might not like it. It's not an easy call. What we need is a procedure in place to make sure that what goes into free trade agreements is something that we actually want, is something that we will be able to live with for a longer time, these are not just signed for two years, they are there to stay. And so we have to be nuanced about their content and about how we go about negotiating them. We need a consultation process in place so that we can ask industry, NGOs, civil society, what they want, what they don't want. And in the end, we might want to go ahead with some of them and with others, we might say, no, quite frankly, we'd rather not have an agreement with those rules in them because we don't like those rules. And even if we get something in return, we don't want those rules. So I, I can't sense. believe it. Yeah, absolutely. No, it absolutely makes sense. And it, it sort of... Um just sort of strikes me as yet again kind of nuance and expertise and research and patience and all the things that don't seem to be uh, prevalent in 2018 politics is what we need yet again. But yeah, um, so I think there's also these, these trade agreements, if you look at them, they're incredibly long, incredibly nuanced, 
And in the end, they, even though they're called trade agreements, if you wonder what goes in them, it is what the two sides want in there. And that ends up being a little bit like the US budget. If one side says, oh, but quite frankly, we want something for our workers in there, and the other side says yes, then there will be something about workers' rights in there. If one side says, but look, we're protecting the environment, you're not, so we want some environmental standards in them, and the other side says yes, they're in there. There's no natural limits to what can be theoretically put into a trade agreement. And we can like those rules. We, they can be very beneficial, but they are not necessarily what will make us prosper. But on the other side, we, we, we also have to be aware that there are problems that no country can tackle by itself. You cannot, the UK can have the highest environmental standards, but climate change will not be solved by the UK on its own. It needs to cooperate. If you take fisheries, it's good to say we want sovereignty over our waters, but it doesn't help with protecting fish stock. Fish cross borders. We can protect fish within our exclusive economic zone as much as we want to, but if they leave the exclusive economic zone and are fished away immediately, then the fish stock will suffer. So cooperation is the name of the game, and for that, sometimes we need to submit to common obligations. And if we want them to be effective, we might even need a system that enforces the rules properly. And I think this is a debate that we need to have. Hmm. Absolutely. I mean, it's either that or we need to give fish passports somehow. And I don't know how, <laughs> I don't know how we could manage that. <laughs> would the passport be blue or red? Oh, it's a good question, isn't it? If it's blue underwater, you wouldn't really be able to tell so well. It would, uh, there's so many questions here. Um, but I have, that, was, that was brilliantly clear. Thank you. And I feel like I, I, I sort of understand things a lot more than before I spoke to you. Um, I wanted to, as a final question, which is something that I ask all our um, interviewees on this podcast, um, just apart from yourself, who obviously uh, the listeners must follow and read up on everything you've done, but who else would you recommend and do you go to um, to find out about things uh, if the listeners are interested in understanding aspects of international law or international trade, uh, sorry, international dispute resolution? So I think the first people to follow here, there's the societies of international law, the American society, the European society, they all have good websites, they all discuss current topics. There's actually also a Twitter account for UK international law that's done by the FCO, that's of course also something to follow. Most of the international courts have their own Twitter handle, so you can follow the International Court of Justice, the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea. Uh, you can also follow the Permanent Court of Arbitration. Uh, those are all interesting to follow. For international relations, bordering on international law, there's the Council on Foreign Relations in the US, there's Chatham House in the UK. For trade, I would recommend, of course, the UK Trade Forum, because our purpose is to try to explain trade and trade law and trade economics in a simple way. I hope we achieve that, but we do have, for example, explanations of the most favored nation obligation under WTO law, trying to explain what that does and how it limits what we can do. Uh, there's also discussions of current problems between trade lawyers on the World Trade Law Net blog. 
And then, of course, there's a whole number of international lawyers on Twitter, ranging from Una Hathaway in the U.S., Jutta Brené in Canada, Yuval Shani in Israel, Hélène Ruiz Fabri in, uh, in, in France and Luxembourg, uh, that you can follow, that all have their own separate interests in different areas of international law and international dispute resolution and are interesting to read. Thank you so much to Holger for that. Uh, we had such a lovely chat that we continued nattering on for about 30 minutes after that interview as well, although admittedly less about trade stuff and more about the sleeplessness of parenting. I am so tired. Anyway, Holger can be found on Twitter at H. Hester M, uh, so that's H-H-E-S-T-E-R-M, and you can find a number of his lectures and articles online if you do a Google. Uh, all the other links, people, and groups he suggests following will be on the new Fancy Schmancy website by the end of the week. It's so fancy. Have a look. It's got like a bit where it doesn't look like there's anything there, and then you put the mouse over it, and there's something there. What's going on? Anyway, I've said it before, and I'll say it again, Dagnabbit. If you have anyone you'd like me to interview or a subject you'd like me to find someone to interview about, please do get in touch via the new contact thing on the website, the at Parpolbro Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or why not storm the stage at Eurovision to shout it during UK's entry next year, ruining a song that no one thought could get any worse, and I'll not be able to make out what you said as you're quickly bundled off stage and you become an international meme, and then the song still does badly because even a stage invasion couldn't make it interesting. As I always say, probably just easier to email, isn't it? And that is all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast. Thank you once again for wrapping your lug holes around these chat sounds. Uh, don't forget, you can now go to the fancy new website at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk and have a snoop around there clicking things and sending me rude emails, you cads. Uh, and also on there, you'll find links to the Patreon and Ko-fi donations uh, to this week, Resurrect My Poor, Poor Drowned Laptop. Um, if you can't donate, then please do drop the show at a nice review at iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Acquaintance, Fidel, Cast Row, or cephalopod or any others I've just made up. Those are those are pretty rubbish. Those are pretty rubbish this week. Anyway, thanks to Acast for holding the show amongst its gallery of ear clowns, and to my brother, the last skeptic, for all the music that I keep stealing from him. This show will be back next week when I'll be looking at David Miliband's speech alongside one of the ones off Dragon's Den and Sooty, all standing behind some Ainsley Harriet Couscous to recommend we just decide it's 2006 again, as he personally had a lovely time that year. Bye. This week's show is brought to you by the TomTom Brexit. For a post-EU, post-Galileo satellite UK, TomTom bring you a sat-nav that allows you to tell it where you want to go and then it faffs around arguing with itself as to how to get there with no realistic options. Special Plus Edition comes with speedy routes to the closest cliff edge and recorded directions from David Davis as he just keeps telling you to U-turn over and over again. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. 
Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.